A film and television podcast where we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name's Eden Davis, and joining me this week through the miracle of satellite technology, it's Emily Benita. Hi, Emily. How's it going? Well, Ed, you are speaking to someone who had their first meal in a sit-in restaurant uh, for months Ooh. yesterday. There is a little place near me. It's kind of uh, it's hot, mm. it's very bougie, Ed. Uh, it was very nice, uh, independent Italian <laughs> bistro, mm. and. I had uh, I had all the things I had because <laughs> uh, because this is like top podcast content, isn't it? Just people listing things that they've put in their body. Um, mm-hmm. But we had some burrata on the go, some olives. I had this vegan pasta special, which was insanely good, like fresh vegan pasta in a shape that I can't remember or pronounce. Um, kind of reminded me of like an, an udon, but but like prettier and curvier. It looked like a musical note. Um, so mm. that's that's a fun mystery for anyone to solve. They so wish what what pasta shape did Emily eat? But it had like a Romanesco sauce and like flaked almonds, and I was like, oh, I would never think to put those two together because I'm I cook the same three meals on rotation. Ed, I love food, <laughs> but I'm very bad at doing it for myself or being like anywhere near inventive. There might have also been cocktails and some very nice biodynamic wine mm-hmm. and a big fat cannoli at the end. <laughs> I had a lot of Campari running through it. So I'm still just buzzing off of that. And I had a delayed reaction about four in the morning when I woke up and I was like, oh my God, that just happened. Like (laughs) splitting the bill. I haven't had to split the bill for ages. How did I even miss doing that? But it's that funny thing of something that your brain is already very used to because Mm. as, as pernicious as this pandemic experience is, and as we have already stated, you know, the hell zone is never too far away and there's always space for more. My brain was like, well, this is what we're used to. So in Mm. in the moment, I didn't feel anxious at all. But afterwards, it was like, oh, when I'm out of that context and realising what happened. Um, But it was all very good. Like, everyone was, like, far apart. It was, like, set seating and, like, set times. And lots of people were out in in force to support them. So that's nice. Uh, That's that's the hope. Servers were all wearing masks. And, and doing a great job in terms of how we're all starting to like communicate now mm-hmm. <laughs> in the hustle and bustle of a nice restaurant, slightly harder to hear. It was it was wild. And I again, it's kind of like dipping my toe in the water. As much as I love that, I don't think I'll be doing that for a little while. Mm. Partly because I can't afford it, but mainly because it's like, oh no, I think for the time being, it has to be an absolute treat, really. Yeah. Um, just Just for so many reasons, but like risk and... Because, you know, I sat there and was without mask and around people and putting things in my mouth in you know, just under two hours. And it's kind mm. of saying like, well, how different, sure, you know, would actually being in a cinema screen, half capacity, <laughs> seated away from each other with masks on. And it's just this weird sliding scale of like, what is okay? And the confusion around wanting to do the right thing wanting to have some semblance of a life again, but not wanting mm. to hurt people. I, you know, I felt fine. I still feel fine. I'm hoping that, you know, we all continue to feel fine. <laughs> I don't develop symptoms because it was, it was lovely and, and, and did me a lot of good. And, you know, the restaurant have got 
my number and, and my email in case anything happens and need to be tested and tried. You can see, but this is it. Ed. Like I had, I had a lovely time, and now there's all this fallout from it. Still, I'm just like, <laughs> um, but it'll be a takeaway later, I think, rather than rather than sit in. And how how are you? Howdy, partner. You you <laughs> yank you. Yeah. I originally, I completely forgot to this. I was going to do a bit where I opened up saying, like, how are you all? Oh. <laughs> shot of a shot when you sit a spell. While we, uh, <laughs> oh, while we we... Do, you want, do you want to reverse engineer the bit? We can, we can do that. <laughs> no, it's fine. <laughs> um, but, but uh, yeah, as, as uh, you intimated, I became an American citizen this week. Yeehaw. Which, yeehaw, indeed. Which was lovely and strange because... Uh, it was not supposed to happen <laughs> this week. I mean, in the broader sense, it wasn't supposed to happen this week because I was meant to have my final interview to kind of finalise the process back in April. And then the coronavirus, like cases spiked and uh, all of the uh, immigration offices in America closed down and only reopened in Florida in the past week or so. So I was very lucky that they got me in so quickly to kind of like, you know, get through the backlog of cases they've clearly had built up over the, the last three four months uh but it, it wasn't supposed to happen from my perspective because um having seen my parents go through their citizenship process and knowing other people who have become citizens over the last couple of years the way it's meant to work is like you live here for five years you establish residency you don't commit a crime or anything you know you don't do anything to render yourself ineligible and then you submit an application, which basically, you know, is a, a lot of forms that you fill in with all the information about where you've worked, where you've lived, uh, your marital status, and all this information. You submit that, they assess it, then they give you an interview, you go to the interview, you have to answer a bunch of questions about American history, and then, you know, they demonstrate that you can read and write in English with reasonable capacity. At the end of the interview, they basically say whether or not you've passed or not. And then usually what they do is they kind of say okay we're going to schedule your naturalization ceremony for some point in the coming months and then you wait and then you get an invitation and then you go to the ceremony but because obviously these offices have been closed for a long time and also i think they are trying their hardest to minimize you know having people have to come into these enclosed spaces for these kind of official things they have basically started saying yeah we'll do it the same day if you want and so I had passed the interview and they said, yeah, we can do it today if you want. And I was like, oh, I could I could say I'll do it later. So like maybe my parents could come and attend because I attended theirs and it was very moving. But also there's no guarantee that the situation in Florida as far as coronavirus goes is going to be any better in like a month or two months that it would be safe to kind of bring guests along and also it may not even just be that safe for me to come back on my own in a couple of months, you know, because I'd always, like like you, you know, this was the first time, uh, and your lovely uh, restaurant experience, uh, which in my head I was thinking, God, this is like breaking the waves, but for a nice <laughs> indoor dining experience. <laughs> it's just really nice to hear someone describe eating lovely food. Um, you know, I, this was the longest period of time that I'd spent in, like, something that wasn't, my apartment or the like a, a supermarket or something for the last five months basically even though there were very few people in there like this was a there's like a 
a hall it's kind of like a you know like a a hall in a small primary school or something you know like not massive but high ceilings could usually fit like a hundred or so people in seats or whatever um well so what they were doing was like every six seats there was one seat you could sit in and everything else was marked off as you couldn't sit there for social distancing purposes and they were only processing like 15 people at a time or something so even though it then what the people there were doing was clearly optimal in terms of avoiding exposure and making it so that people weren't sitting next to each other or anything it was still very stressful being there being constantly aware and even though I was only there for a couple of hours really like it felt really long because I had that going over in my mind what surfaces have I touched you know <laughs> am I going to have to uh, wash my hands am I have to go and like disinfect everything do they have any disinfectant anywhere that I can use all these kind of concerns that are going through my head that in a normal situation you wouldn't be thinking about so yeah so like I thought I don't really want to have to go through this again let's let's all do it now so me and six other people you know had to do the whole holding up hand saying an oath thing or our certificates and left and it was you know not they didn't have the sense of pomps and circumstance that you would kind of hope for in that situation and that I saw where my parents uh, got their citizenship but it was still you know quite a meaningful thing like you, there was a sense of import to it for us all doing it and uh, I was really impressed by the, the the clerks and everyone who were handling all of it who were just like diligently going about their task trying to get through as many people as possible and helping people with any questions they had in the middle of you know a very difficult situation for everyone but it was it was uh, it was quite moving and yeah it's it's nice. It's nice to become an American at the weirdest possible time. <laughs> to become an American. <laughs> yeah, that's that's definitely um, that's that's full blown American. Yeah. So we'll go on to the news this week, and we don't have a huge amount because this episode is kind of a news episode anyway. We're going to be talking about kind of like the big question facing the film industry at the moment but uh we did get some news broke broke in the last hour or so which is that olivia de Havilland passed away at the age of 104 now i'm not saying we called our shot but we did <laughs> we did a whole episode about olivia de Havilland not a month ago because she turned 104 it was her birthday and you and i both basically said we should probably celebrate her while she's alive because 104 is pretty old. You don't. There's no guarantee she'll make it to 105. And you want to celebrate someone who was a very a great actress and a very significant figure in the history of Hollywood labor relations, and someone who lives a really fascinating life. So yeah, we wanted to celebrate her while she was still alive. And yeah, I'm glad we did that because apparently okay. we did it. Uh, we got in right under the under the wire. It's not so much we told everyone so. It's more we proved mm-hmm. ourselves right by living by our principles, and that is definitely what I think we should do. And mm. if anyone hasn't listened to our Olivia de Havilland episode, um, please do. Um, and in in tribute, she also ha- was like Carrie Fisher in that I didn't realize but she'd been interviewed in terms of like how do you want to go or like bringing up mm. like if you die and it's just wonderful it's like the most Olivia de Havilland <laughs> thing ever because she says if I must at some time leave this life I would lo- like to do so ensconced on a chaise long perfumed wearing a velvet robe and pearl earrings with a flute of champagne <laughs> beside me and having just discovered the answer to the last problem in a British cryptic crossword and Liv, I really hope that's how you went out. 
yeah, and I'm just trying to think if, uh, if there's any specific movies that I would point people to. Um, the Heiress is great. I think that was one of the ones Oscar for, a wonderful movie. And a movie that of hers that I only watched fairly recently because um, it was a movie featuring Rita Hay- Hayworth in a supporting role and it was part of the Criterion Channel's like Rita Hay- Hayworth series. Uh, the Strawberry Blonde, in which she is paired up with uh, James Cagney and she plays a kind of uh, suffragette who kind of shakes his uh, beliefs in uh, you know, the way things are done. And it's a very, very lovely uh, movie in which she is absolutely fantastic. And so, yeah, so if anyone wants to seek out any Olivia de Havilland stuff, you know, there's lots of great stuff out there, but those would be my two recommendations. I'd also say, not that I really recommend people being on Twitter any more than it's necessary, but already, <laughs> like, just scrolling through the Olivia de Havilland tag, what's lovely is so many people being like, oh, like, how great was she? Here are loads of, like, at Red Room rantings is saying, if you want to watch some deep, uh, deep cut Olivia de Havilland films, which is great. And I'm like, The Dark Mirror, what? I didn't realise she played twins with herself. That looks great. <laughs> um, and also, like, you've, you've got to admire someone who um, is past 100 and, just, and wants to sue Ryan Murphy anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just never want to walk away from a fight. <laughs> <laughs> Our next story is one that'll take us into our main topic, but we got a new trailer for Bill and Ted Save the World, I believe. Oh, Face, Face uh, Bill and Ted, the Music. Face the Music. Which, wink, yes. wink, probably means Save the World. But. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the third film in the Bill and Ted franchise, the first since the early 90s, uh, much talked about, discussed one of those movies that was in development hell for years and years and years, and everyone was like, oh yeah, we're totally working on it. And then uh, it's finally happened. We've got a couple of trailers so far. They look okay. (laughs) There's not a huge amount in them that makes me feel like this is going to be great, but it's very hard not to be won over by Alex Winter and Keanu Reeves, who are just very, very charming Mm. people. And it's fun seeing them play those characters again. Uh, I do feel like the trailer gives away what I assume is going to be the ending of the movie mm. by a specific the specific way that a line that the like head of the future council says. But that that was that was the only thing that was really mark uh, uh, notable for me. The rest of it was like, oh, there's some funny jokes, and I like these pe- these actors, and it's nice seeing them together again. Um, but the thing about the the this particular trailer that was really notable to me was that it confirmed that the movie is going to be coming out on it's, it's doing going day and date basically it's going to be out in theaters it's going to be on vod at the same time when it comes out in september and this isn't the first uh movie to do that obviously a few movies have done that uh since the start of the pandemic uh, most notably things like uh, trolls world tour and bloodshot um were kind of like the two major ones but this feels like the first major film to really like for months and months to really acknowledge the fact that cinemas are maybe not coming back in a major way for a while because yeah the rest of them have all been kind of like you know tenet constantly moving its release date or whatever like they've all been pushing their their release dates back and not kind of dealing with the question of when cinemas are coming back whereas this one is very much kind of facing the music and saying chances are the movie was not going to be a massive runaway hit so we'll put it out in 
theaters if they're open that's great but if not putting on vod so that people can watch it because it doesn't make sense for us to keep pushing this movie back and i found that to be really interesting and kind of yeah we'll get into this in the main topic really kind of had me thinking about what kind of level of movie a movie has to be for that to occur where they kind of think ah, it probably wasn't going to earn 300 million no. so probably not worth us holding on to it you know let's let's kind of get what we can get like similar to obviously very different movies but something like first cow where it's like yeah. you know a kelly reichardt movie about two two men secretly milking it's is probably Jesus <laughs> <laughs> that is an absolute winner of the tackle <laughs> probably wasn't going to be a barn burner yeah. you know, <laughs> gonna, probably wasn't going to rival whatever the really top oh, uh, gay 24 movies are i but, wish i wish it would though what a beautiful world it would be if first cow ended <laughs> up being like you know the new moonlight or something <laughs> so it makes sense for that one to go straight to vod because it's probably not going to earn that much less um whereas Bill and Ted, there's there's an outside chance that it could have been a decent a decent like 50, 60 million earner. So yeah, it's it's interesting seeing the studios kind of work that out for themselves in in real time. I'll be like, what what's the level of movie that we can just say, yeah, okay, we're just gonna cut our losses and put it out on VOD. It's interesting that there's a long lead up as well, like the trailer dropping mm. now, and it's like, oh September, cool. That's I mean, in some ways it's like that's actually not that far away. <laughs> <laughs> like what six weeks or something, yeah. but to me it still feels like that means autumn, um, mm-hmm. and whether like schools will be back. I'm not completely certain on what the age certification is on it, but you can see that being like a sort of PG thirteen, so it could be like a bit more of a family nostalgia mm. kind of yeah. kind of go because and before going like straight into sort of, like talking about strategy and stuff in terms of my response to the trailer it was interesting because they are just so adorable and it's lovely to see bill and ted and to have that like really positive sort of masculinity like they're they're, mm. they're daft but they're not dude where's my car like like playing stupid for laughs like they are sweet and daft and probably a bit naive but genuinely do want to do the best and in terms of you know the heroes that we need at a time when toxic masculinity is absolutely rife and probably like the biggest threat to the planet it's very nice to see those two boys again Mm. because they're just they want to do the right thing they want to like play their music but now they have to face it and that they're still that they're kind of in it's intimated that they're in the same place that they were when we left them like Mm. they're married um, and they have kids, daughters, who are very like their dads. And it's interesting, this like injection of like family life and more women as well. And I mean, both of the actors playing their wives, I think, are significantly younger <laughs> than mm-hmm. Keanu Reeves and Ice Winter. But we can't have everything, can we, Ed? But mm. the, the opening gag about couples counselling is, I like. <laughs> and, yeah, then it, and then you're right, okay. like, when, when you said, oh, it, it seems like, you know, the ending of the film's kind of in the trailer, I was like, yeah. And I also wasn't like, after that initial great gag, I wasn't too fussed about, I wasn't like, oh, I'm desperate to see this off the back of the trailer. Because I think Bill and Ted is so funny. Mm. And that, that there wasn't a lot of that in this. But I'm still, of course, I'm going to watch the heck out of it. But I like that, you know, there has 
of, of all the teams who make a film and maybe I'm just clinging on for something <laughs> um, and desperately trying not to be cynical. I'm not surprised and really delighted that it's they're sort of going out first in a way <clears throat> and saying, well, let's be excellent to each other. Let's try and kind of meet people where they are and, and, and have both. And I think that it will be a really interesting method going forward um, and thinking about like, you know, the weird gap between like why Disney Plus sort of launched in some places and then not in others. And it's like <laughs> Mandalorian's got pirated the shit out of like faster than you can say baby Yoda is cute. And in terms of like, like with, with the internet, territories were already starting to sort of erode a bit. Um, unless you yeah. know, have a sort of VPN or whatever, but even but now it's like because we're we are all on the internet. The, well, the majority of I'm not saying every single human being is they're not, and that is a crucial, <laughs> a crucial important thing we have to look at. But you know, the people who would be going to the the majority of people who would be going to the cinema are now on the internet mm. for a lot of the time, and therefore you know on the internet. It, in terms of citizenship, basically, I'm rambling about COVID's brought in something really interesting in terms of it's kind of reignited the importance of territories because there are some places they're going to be able to open cinemas fully and places that aren't. Mm-hmm. And, and not that any of us could have foreseen this, but that's the only thing I can see why it's like, oh, we'll release this in these cinemas here because they're also covering their backs because theatres may not obviously be open. Something may, you know that's around the time that a second wave could come in yeah so they're kind of covering their bases and i think it's a really solid way of doing it mm. yeah absolutely and it totally makes sense for them to like say for, for a movie of that scale which probably wasn't terribly expensive to make by modern standards because it feels like a labor of love for reeves and winter and everyone involved like it's just a thing they really wanted to do so it's hardly like it was a massively expensive thing to put together it makes sense for them to cover themselves like that by basically saying if it opens and cinemas are open and we make money through ticket sales that way then great if not we'll probably do reasonably okay from the vod stuff and that's already uh kind of takes us on to the main topic for this week because what we're, we're talking about is when are movies coming back essentially and i think you know it's important to kind of like frame that obviously movies are still being released movies are debuting on streaming services they're debuting on you know vod they are debuting in virtual cinemas you know there are now more ways to see movies than there have ever been before just not as many ways to see them in a physical space and so that's kind of the the conversation we're going to be having today is like, when do we feel like we'll approach some degree of normalcy of people being able to go and take part in the communal experience of watching a movie, which I think is the archetypal thing that people think of when we talk about what, you know, going to the movies entails, what seeing a film entails is you will go to a place to watch a movie at a predetermined time with friends or large groups of strangers, you know, to kind of enjoy this thing as a collective and this is obviously like you like you said it's going to vary from territory to territory because obviously some countries have got covid under control to an extent that others haven't and are 
moving towards reopening theatres at reduced capacity, and we'll be talking about uh, at least one of those um, at some point. But there is a complication in that, because obviously America's in no situation to start reopening cinemas on a mass way that, you know, is in keeping with the way that cinema going has gone and cinema distribution has gone over the last like 10 years or so with these huge mega openings where films open in close to 4,000 screens all at once and the focus is on getting as much money in an opening weekend, you know, kind of like getting these huge blockbuster opening weekends that, you know, previously were unthinkable that a movie like Avengers Endgame could come out and make $357 million in three days. That was like, even five years ago, that was not thought possible. <sighs> and uh, probably not possible for the next five years. <laughs> um, you know, like, seems like with that, that represent a peak of that approach to releasing movies because of just how, how cinemas are going to adapt over the next sort of two years or so until enough people have got a vaccine that you could reasonably start having people go to cinemas uh, in those sort of numbers. So that's kind of like what we're going to be discussing in this episode. It's like, when do we feel like cinemas will return to the kind of way of operating that we, we are all uh, familiar with? And what is kind of in the way of that? And I think probably, other than COVID, obviously... The main obstacle that I can see is that Hollywood studios, and Hollywood is not the be-all, end-all, it's not the world, it's not homogenous even within itself, but it is kind of like a dominant force in global film culture. So many of the biggest grossing movies of the year are produced by American studios. Very few of them want to release movies right now, and certainly don't want to release them in large numbers in screens. Mm. And because... America is so central to their business model they get more money from American screens than they do from foreign screens because they don't have to pay foreign distributors and they don't have to pay foreign taxes on profits and things like that mm-hmm. things like that there is a you know American uh, film studios do not want to release movies that can't play in America in significant numbers because they're going to kind of like lose a huge amount of money if they do that and that contributes to the kind of the the dearth of product that we've been going through over the last couple of months to give a sense just of how many movies that were meant to be coming out have not come out these are the movies that we all would have seen by now or would have had a chance to see by now were it not for the coronavirus pandemic uh, a quiet place part two spiral from the book of saw in the heights top gun maverick minions the rise of Gru. Jungle Cruise, Greyhound, which at least went to streaming, but people would have seen that in cinemas in in June. Uh, We would all be enjoying the second week of Tenet. Uh, We would have all seen Mulan. We would have be we would currently be girding ourselves for the discourse wars around Wes Anderson's The French Dispatch, which would have been released around about now. Uh, Wonder Woman 1984, The New Candyman, Black Widow, No Time to Die, which obviously was the first like major film to get delayed back in uh, that would have come out in April. Uh, Pixar's Soul would have come out in June. Free Guy, Ghostbusters Aftermath, uh, Morbius would be out at the end of this month. Uh, <laughs> sorry, just remembered the Morbius trailer. Uh, um, uh, F9, the ninth Fast and Furious movie, would have been out in May. So 
a lot of big movies that have not seen the light of day and probably won't until next year. So it's just that's a real sign of just like how many movies have been delayed by the coronavirus, but also because Hollywood has a disinclination to release those movies in any form, at least at this point. I mean, that's so many, Ed. Mm. And what I thought about, where I started thinking in terms of, you know, when are things going to come back in any way, shape or form, I just thought, oh, let's let's go back to the context of last year. And it was an article that I found by David Sims. Now, this is like three years ago um, in, in sort of March that he wrote this. Um, it's called The Summer Blockbuster Season is Already Here. And it's really interesting because he manages to capture how what we you know casually refer to as summer blockbuster season does not start in summer it starts mm. in late march early april now and mm. looking at the pattern of of last year um being you know the record breaking almost sounds kind of a bit facetious to say that it doesn't quite match just this how staggering avengers endgame was and I mean, I knew it was a lot, Ed, but again, like it just bent my already very sort of bendy mind at the moment. A worldwide gross of $2.795 billion. Wow. Just for Avengers Endgame, just for Disney. And then in terms of everything else, I think because that really did force everything else into the shadows in some way, it was the film of the year from April, like all the way through. Um, so it's not so much summer blockbuster season. We're talking about, you know, two quarters, like basically half the year is is actually what where these summer blockbusters come from. And there's a great uh, screen rant roundup. I was going to say wind down. I was like, that's not it. Roundup. <laughs> wind down, roundup. Uh, spring forward, fall back. Um, by Kaylee Donaldson um, in about um, so the middle of August last year. And of course, like around August, September, things do start to sort of slow down a bit. You sort of start to get kind of like um, maybe some horror in, in anticipation for Halloween. But then also it's like gear shifting to awards again um, as everything starts to get cooler and darker and everyone just wants grit and, and pain after all of the gaudy, <laughs> the gaudy colours of, um, of the preceding, uh, the, the months before. I do words good at the moment, Ed. Um, it's, it's a really great um, article, I think, because in terms of seeing the overall trends of studios and how Disney obviously like completely decimated everyone with a, um, Avengers Endgame, but then lost in in other areas. It's very hard to actually find like the concrete data of like how we can project in terms of what is actually being lost this year in terms of like mm. pure pure hard capital and profit because it's unlikely that anything was going to surpass Endgame um, because, you know, that that broke records and, you know, maybe a, a quieter one for um, for Disney. But in terms of not only um, it's, you know, but release strategies, like the sort of small, like quote unquote smaller films, which is kind of ridiculous because you don't really get many mid-budget films anymore. Like the smaller sort of arms of studios, like I just think about like focus features and, and bits like that have all sort of like shut down or like really have been really squeezed. But again, it's still quite like jolly stuff. Like yesterday and Rocket Man both did incredibly well. Um, yeah. Considering 
who they were like yesterday apparently was a sleeper here and i think like i mean in terms of the quality i wonder if it's sort of a cat's scenario in that people are like you are not going to believe who turns up in a caravan like towards the end and <laughs> and it's quite I'm actually reading everything about like jack bath and 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 his um you know cover version and and realizing like oh god it's a bit you know sort of underhanded but i think people genuinely last year were looking for stuff that was really quite silly because in screen rant the stuff that like critically did pretty well such as book smart and long shot um and late night i mean i know late night was a bit torn but that's a kind of like critically speaking but it's still a reasonably sort of like grown-up women fronting i can see it as being the kind of thing that a bunch of it's it's a it's a new kind of chick flick it's like it's not necessarily like relationships are you know it's not about romantic relationships it's about it's a it's a rom-com about two women who are both in love with work Mm. so it's and it's not quite the devil wears prada it's got more facets to it than that but you know apparently didn't do that well at the box office neither did book smart which is wild to me but because i felt like it was everywhere and people were like saying how great it was mm. um and maybe again that's one that's just going to have to kind of like come back on return because i can see that becoming like like a solid quotable film for lots of girls around that age anticipation yeah. of it being that age Again, like so much superhero stuff. Spider-Man Far From Home did really, really well. Men in Black International did did not <laughs> for, for many <laughs> reasons. Um, again, Disney, Toy Story 4, Lion King, Aladdin, you know, wildly different, like sort of critically response wise. But it, it's a lot of spectacle just seemed to be doing incredibly well last year, which I sort of didn't really grasp. And then, um, but you still got, you know, Tarantino, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, did really really well and yeah it's it's interesting like the the end of this screen run is saying like you know summer summer's coming to a close but there's still stuff to look forward to joker it chapter two the rise of skywalker <laughs> cats little women and i'm like oh god this feels like a message from a fucking time capsule <laughs> <laughs> it's been so long kaylee it's been so long so in terms of i mean it's interesting that Tenet and Bond, you know, the kind of Christopher Nolan's like unofficial franchise, mm. right? It's like the new one from him in the same way with Tarantino, right? He's he's kind of the auteur that's coming back this year. Ditto Wes Anderson. But it's interesting that like basically it was sort of Bond and Nolan that were going to be, from what I can see, the really big movies of this year. And I wonder if superhero films are kind of like one on one off. But now what's what production has had to be shut down? What stuff is going to... I really hope there's not going to be a kind of video games industry-esque crunch with some of these things as soon mm. as like, because it's not just what's going to be released. It's what is still not getting made just yeah. now. Um, and how much longer, you know, the knock-on effect of that could be like 18 months for some, for some films. Yeah. I think it's going to be interesting seeing what happens next year because at the moment, so many of these movies are scheduled to come out next year at some point. <laughs> and like, if you know there's a breakthrough with the virus like late this year early next uh, with the with the vaccine late this year early next year and then they kind of like ramp up production and people are able to get vaccinated on in decent enough numbers that you know things start to turn around 
the, the, the earliest that you would kind of expect under the rosiest estimates of life returning to normal is sort of like late 2021, like more likely going into 2022. And in some respects, like at that, that sort of a gap seems like something that could at least be filled by like the movies from this year just getting pushed back to next year. But then 2022 when something's like, oh, right, remember when we just couldn't make movies for, for the, like, six months, or even when we could make movies, it was, like, a much more laborious process because, you know, you couldn't really have too many people on a set. It's not like you could just do loads of setups in a day. You know, like, movies probably take a lot longer, will probably take a lot longer to make because of all that sort of stuff. Uh, that's where I think you would really start to to see it and that's again under the rosiest situations if things are still pretty bad next year around about like this time cinemas aren't opening to any significant amount then you know that's when it's going to be a, a real problem for those studios because they'll all just be like disney will just be sitting on black widow for two years or whatever and just be kind of like well we'll release it at some point mm. like we're, we're pretty sure this one's going to make a billion but we're we're waiting we're waiting to find a a point where not only are enough seek, uh, cinemas open that will get a decent return for it but you know enough cinemas are open that can have a hundred percent capacity so that we can actually sell a lot of tickets for these things yeah it could actually be interesting in thinking about changing to distribution like i wonder if we'll end up returning to like the way that movies used to be where they would sit in cinemas for months just because like you know, you could you could see something like a Black Widow still earning like whatever, like two hundred and fifty million in the US. Those those kind of like typical Marvel numbers at this point for you know a non big event film uh, or non big team up film, but it would just have to play for a really long time because you would have fewer screenings a day and then fewer people per screening as you're seeing at the moment in like China which has started to open some cinemas where their whole approach to it is that they are showing for uh, half as many screenings per day and the screenings that are in there are like 30% so uh, they it was announced this week in an article by uh, Scott Mendelson for Forbes talking about how Doolittle the Robert Downey Jr. flop that came out five months ago is the number one movie in China but only because it earned like five million there which is like a real pittance even for a flop Hollywood movie but that's you know about the upper echelon of what you would expect a movie to be able to earn if you're saying okay most of the cinemas are closed the ones that are open aren't showing that much stuff to that many people it's just kind of while thinking like even at full capacity like sort of multiplexes and you'll have the same film across like 10 screens at like mm. at like 15 minute intervals <laughs> to kind of churn as many people through for like Avengers Endgame and then Star Wars and things like that mm. How, and it's like well no one else has a chance either because this yeah. space has been bought up by them and then it only really drops off months and months later and that's at full capacity obviously but i wonder yeah i guess kind of staggering or i i mean i i still it'll be really interesting to see how bill and ted goes because mm. i think back to a field in england 
that was released mm. in, that was released in like cinemas shown on channel 4 and on VOD all on the same day yeah and it was kind of interesting to do it with that film because it's such a fucking niche film anyway <laughs> yeah and something that was made super cheap as well yeah but like totally so it's kind of pushing out the boat all the way like it's going it's leaning really hard on like everything is experimental right mm. it, it's an experimental format for an experimental film that, that could also sort of been a play because it's quite you know a small cast and you know it, it shock horror um, spoilers is set in a field in England and we don't really mm-hmm. go anywhere else but I always wonder what the kind of the, the takeaway from that was because I remember being quite excited and actually go like I was living in Edinburgh when it when it came out and I and I actually went to go and see it um, at the cameo uh, because I still wanted to see the film and I wanted to see it in the cinema because I was like oh black and white and a bit weird and it was pretty packed um, so it's interesting when you give everyone any option that suits them at the same time it kind of reminds me of the sort of staggering and yet you're covering as many people as you possibly could um, with pay what you want Mm. and pay what you can and how that's been in terms of like live events really interesting to try and remove barriers to access but you also get four pounds from someone that you wouldn't have got eight pounds from, but you still get that four pounds, you know? And, you know, in terms of like comedy, that's been pretty standard um, for a little while, but um, it sort of came in pretty much officially at the Fringe last year and was great. It really sort of, because, and at least you'd get people who'd come in and stay for your show. (laughs) They'd be like, oh yeah, I'll give it a punt for free. And then, hopefully give you something for it afterwards but in terms of like more like platforms rather than pay because i think we'll still have to pay the same or if not more like it's kind of wild the disparity in in depending on what um what streaming format you're using because i think as i mentioned ed uh, last week i'm trying to avoid amazon as much as i can Mm. and i mean apple tv isn't much better but there's still a lot of stuff there and thinking that, you know, I watched The Assistant for 99p and I was like raving about it. And, you know, that came out recently. And then The King of Staten Island is £14 to rent. <laughs> yeah. For fuck's sake. I want to see it. Don't get me wrong. And also, like, I want to see Palm Springs. But because I don't have access to Hulu, I can't. Mm. And, you know, Hulu and BBC, like similar to FX, have done this kind of handshake deal. But that's just for TV. There's no films. And it's just this weird point where it just feels a bit like, I mean, I do, I know I sound a bit like a petulant teenager, but it's a bit like, well, you get it. Why can't I? What makes you so special? Because <laughs> um, surely, like, because I would happily, like, if I were able to get access to Hulu, and this is just where pirating happens. And it's because if you spend more on marketing than you do distribution, you will make people feel entitled to see a film. <laughs> um, you'll hook them and you won't give them anywhere to get the legal supply. So they're just going to be dastardly about it. And also at a time when, of course, like, you know, <laughs> it's the economy, stupid. A lot of people don't have the same disposable income. And I hate that phrase, but you know what I mean? They don't have the money. We're all still sort of like scrabbling to try and figure out what we can do. 
And if cinemas are still as expensive as they are, you know, in terms of like for for a ticket, like the inflation that's happened even over the past 10 years is nuts. You know, in terms of what people expect from that. And I don't know, I guess like, as I was sort of saying earlier, like being like, well, I was all right with being in a restaurant. How do I feel about being in a cinema? I guess the thing is, is that my, my feet didn't stick to the floor in the restaurant. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I trust that people are like, you know, cinemas are sort of like looking at cleaning and things but i'm like can we just get rid of carpet can we, can we just use <laughs> can we just use this experience to understand that carpet is just awful mm. well i think more likely is they'll just eliminate concessions because that's also one of the things that uh, <sighs> china have done with um their reopening is you know they reduced capacity reduced screenings and also they don't sell any concessions it's just tickets for the movies Interesting. which is devastating for cinemas because as everyone knows that's where a lot of their money comes from obviously they get some money from the tickets but certainly in america it's uh disproportionately disproportionately weighted in favor of the studios the studios get a greater cut of the price of the ticket at least at least initially and then as the weeks go on the cinema takes more of it and but when films are only really around in cinemas for like a month and a half whatever then you know it doesn't really benefit the cinemas too much so a lot of their money has to come from just selling concessions so that's not a great solution although you know if uh, as i said earlier we do end up in a situation where like black widow ends up playing for a year in cinemas because like that's just the only way disney can recoup their costs on it maybe that would be more beneficial to uh, to cinemas down the road piracy i think is an interesting thing to consider as well if we're thinking about what is what exactly is keeping movies from being released at this moment the i think piracy has to be the biggest concern for for hollywood studios because like there's an argument that people are making of like well you know things are reasonably under control in like new zealand there's large parts of asia where you could probably open cinemas fairly safely there's parts of europe where you could open cinemas reasonably safely at this point why not just start opening the movies there and the simple answer is because people will pirate the hell out of those movies Mm. and by the time that it's safe to like put jungle crews into cinemas in america anyone who would have any interest in it will probably have pirated it because people like you say people feel entitled to access to that movie uh to, to 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 those sort of products and they want to see it and if you're basically saying yeah there's really no clear sense of when you'll be able to watch this because there's germs everywhere then you know then that's the only recourse you know if if that movie opens in a cinema in Rotterdam by the next day there'll be 20,000 seeds for it or something you know and people will be watching it all over America and then you know whenever it eventually sees the light of day in America an actual theatre you know some people will go and watch it but for the most part most people have watched it and been like yeah not really interested in seeing it it wasn't very good so Mm. (laughs) I just decided not to spend any money on it which then you know kind of the flip side of that is like well why don't you just put it on vod and charge people what they want and like 
there's an argument to that and i think it, economically it works for movies of a certain scale like obviously it works out brilliantly for something like first cow it works out for or, or a field in england which are obviously movies that are made for a relatively small amount of money and don't really need to earn that much money from vod rentals to turn a profit or King of Staten Island, which was probably still a little pricey because Judd Apatow's movies are pricey to begin with, but mm. still not huge. But the problem I think that a lot of the studios hit up against is, and and for this I think you should consider the example of uh, Trolls World Tour, which you know obviously came out on VOD back in March, I think. Originally it was slated to get a cinema release and it was literally like, a week before it was due to come out that all the cinemas closed in America so it just went straight out onto VOD because that you know it was more or less meeting the release date and there were there were some articles that came out at the time that were like oh my god like Trolls World Tour earned as much over the course of like a week as its predecessor did its entire time in theatres you know VOD's the future etc etc and what uh, a lot of other people kind of like pointed out in kind of discussing that article is that actually the original that it's true that like trolls world tour earned like 150 million dollars or something in vod over that weekend and which was more than the first one did but the first one made like 600 million dollars or something worldwide it then earned a huge amount of money on vod and on dvd and home media it earned a huge amount from being sold to tv so even though like in terms of like oh initially it's earning a lot of money it's not really got much of a back end to it in the same way that a movie that releases in theaters does and so Trolls World Tour probably earned considerably less over the course of its lifetime than the original Trolls did and probably won't be as much of a money earner for Universal going forward and that's kind of the problem that I think someone like a Disney faces with something like a Black Widow like you could put Black Widow on VOD a lot of people would buy it it would make like say 500 million dollars over a weekend as everyone who wants to rent it rents it but that would probably it would then taper off pretty massively very quickly as opposed to what you see in the current model which is it earns 250 million dollars in american theaters it earns another 750 million dollars worldwide it earns an extra half a billion dollars from vod and when it eventually hits streaming or you know comes out on blu-ray and you know all the packet the, the the stuff that kind of comes in the back end of that and so that's that's kind of like the other side of things that prevents studios from releasing all these big movies onto VOD. It's like you could get a gaudy number in the first like three days, but you'd be losing such a huge amount of money if you couldn't follow the model that they're all geared towards following at this point. Mm. So they've kind of they're kind of snookered in a way, in that there are options available to them that they could do, but it's just a question of. Like, how much do, do they want to risk losing in order to follow them in the interest of kind of, like, keeping people engaged with the very act of paying to see a movie? <laughs> like, no one, no one knows. No one knows. Yeah. And again, it's... Um, uh, it's uh, the, the neoliberal... <laughs> um, juncture we all find ourselves in. Mm. Because... The main push for all of this is for people to keep is for is for people to 
be paid or for or for money to be exchanged, basically. Mm. I, I'm not sure how much money there is going around to be exchanged um, from from audiences, or it's while you know how disparate it was before, it's even more so. And the number mm. of cinemas themselves who are making staff redundant, or the question of how many will even be able to reopen, you yeah. know, in if if they are forced to remain closed, as I think a lot of uh, theaters in America will be, you know, through the end of the year. Like I can't imagine a mass reopening at this point unless it's done in kind of like hubristic defiance and just hope that oh, I'd probably be fine. <laughs> Which I mean. A few states have tried that. It doesn't work. <laughs> it goes pretty bad. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think that's a good good note to end it on. Uh, we don't know anything. <laughs> but we <laughs> it looks know bad. nothing. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll end the episode. We end all episodes with short reverse shot recommends, in which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you the listeners will enjoy as well. Emily, what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week? Plymouth Point which mm. is the first, I believe, online venture from Swamp Motel, who are made up of um, punch-drunk immersive theatre alumni and also part of uh, Kill the Beast, who are probably one of my favourite comedy outfits um, that, are, that are going, who do really, like, incredible, um, like, gag-heavy, but also, like, their production design is insane. Like... The, the amount of detail that they go to, like I'd hate to see the cue sheet <laughs> for, for everything. Um, Plymouth Point is a online mystery that you play through Zoom, so you can have it in your house with your flatmates, but also have friends from other cities, as I did, as I played it. And it's a mix between like an escape room and a murder mystery. A young woman has gone missing and you are basically sort of sleuthing around the internet and kind of doing sly kind of hacking but it's really fun it's like a, it's a bit like a treasure hunt um with a missing and i cannot stress this enough fictional person um as the uh, as the treasure it was so much fun um it is i don't know if this is what they'd like plan that we're planning to do anyway but if you are sick of quizzes Mm-hmm. Um, I can't recommend it enough as a lockdown activity and it's really fun to sort of instead of just like you know it can be difficult and, and weird to get over the kind of oh we're all on Zoom and we're trying to hang out but this is a bit tricky and, and quizzes someone else has to do it but if you if you pay the good people at Swamp Motel they will give you um, an hour to an hour and a quarter depending on how long it takes you to uh, to solve it to just kind of immerse yourself in a slightly different world and I think it's so smoothly done there's clearly been like so much work that's gone into it um and it's a yeah it's a game it's it's a game that all of you can play and, and chat with each other and um it's not like it's also I think the right level of like a bit spooky and a bit scary mm. without being like full-blown horror um so yeah, Plymouth Point by Swap Motel. They were also very nice to give me a discount code. And if anyone would like the discount code, then maybe just just sidle up to me or Ed on uh, on or the podcast on on Twitter, because um, I feel a bit loath to. <laughs> so, if you if you already want to like get involved in asking and seeking something, then you will be rewarded. <laughs> cool. 
I am going to recommend a documentary that I've been wanting to see for a few years and because it finally hit the Criterion channel uh, this week, which is uh, Ruchi Sakamoto Coda, which is a documentary about the film composer and, uh, you know, kind of composer in general, but I, th- but I think for most people he's, he's maybe known as a film composer, Ruichi Sakamoto, who um, in like the 80s, 70s and 80s, was in a, a group called Yellow Magic Orchestra, who I'm a huge fan of, and who then went on to compose music for movies like Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, which is probably my favourite uh, film score ever, won an Oscar for The Last Emperor, which he also shared with David Byrne, which I always like, my favourite uh, bit of Oscar trivia of two people who you would never have expected to have won an Oscar won it for the same thing, for the same film. And has kind of done like so much work separately from his film work but I was someone who was a huge fan of his 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 film work and of his work for Yellow Magic Orchestra but I never really looked into anything else about his life and I found uh, this documentary was just like really captivating look at him during a particular particularly kind of like dark period of his life where in the early 2010s he was diagnosed with uh, throat cancer and so was kind of really contemplating his mortality but also he was someone who was really um affected by the tsunami in 2011 and the fukushima nuclear disaster that kind of came on after that and he was really shaken by it became a bit more involved in uh, became more involved in like anti-nuclear activism and uh, environmentalism and, and things like that and the doc kind of follows him during this period in which he's recovering he's trying to work on the his score for the revenant and uh he's kind of like looking at his his life over the the years and his approach to making art and the ways in which he has tried to interweave his personal interests um in the world into his work and you know it's it's just a really uh insightful and beautiful look at an artist at a kind of juncture point in his life and how he reached that point where he decides to go uh, from there and uh, I like I say I've been wanting to see it for, for years and years but it finally showed up on the Criterion channel so if you have access to that or if you sign up for a free trial you can watch it and I would highly recommend it it's a really beautiful film and a really great look at a wonderful artist and it will no doubt inspire you to go down a YouTube uh, rabbit hole of watching his performances of which there are many and it's a great way to spend your time if you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player Fans, Spotify, all the usual places, raters, reviewers, and recommend it to your friends. It's the best way to help us grow our audience. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, where we are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next time with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me.